How are you doing this wonderful, spectacular September day? If you ask me, the two best months of the year in Minnesota are May and September. Yeah, because it's, it's uh, I love it when it's 70 or so. That's like perfect. 60 to 70. Over that, it gets too hot. So I'm, I'm, I'm a happy camper. I don't like what's coming next, but I'm enjoying this little window we have right here. So we are going to be starting a new series here today. Uh, it's called You Before Me. You Before Me, and it's on hospitality, kingdom hospitality, which sounds terribly boring, but I guarantee you it's so not. And I hope you'll, you'll come to that agreement, agreement with that as we go on in this message. And I'm telling this message, um, getting under God's skin, though you'll have no reason, you won't know what that's about for about another 15 minutes, so just hang tight. Uh, we're going to be doing something a little different on this. We're, we're uh, going to be encouraging you to engage in some in more activities outside the sermon than we ever have before. So, for example, on, on the back of your bulletin, if you have a bulletin, turn to the back of it, you'll see there that it's, we have this Lectio Divina. That means divine reading. Uh, it's a way of reading scripture that goes back at least 1,500, actually more than 1,500 years uh, in, in the church tradition. And it's just meditating on a passage. You take a single passage, and then you, you just have, there's four different things that you do with this passage. You read it, ask what stands out, you reflect on it, what comes to mind, you pray the point, you turn any insight you have into prayer, anything that comes to you, and then you wait on God to see what, God, what God's going to be saying to you. And it wouldn't have lasted this long in the church tradition if it didn't work. Uh, it's a way for Scripture to really come alive to us. And so, as we're going through the series, every week we're going to have a passage that we're going to be encouraging you to meditate on, at least once throughout the week. And you can do it every night of the week if you want. And I think some of you who maybe have found Bible reading to be a little bit boring may find that this way of approaching Scripture, it makes it come alive. Uh, it opens you up to, kind of, to, be, to better discern the voice of God in the text and gives, uh, positions you to really hear from God. So, Scripture is like God's main tool, or one of God's main tools for shaping our character, for forming us. And, and this is a way of, of putting ourselves in a position where God can do that. So I encourage you to check that out. Also, if you want uh, to find out more about Lectio Divina um, and have it explained better, we have got uh, some handouts on the help desk out there. And so you can stop and pick up one of those on the way out, all right? Uh, also, we're going to be encouraging you, in fact, I'm right now encouraging you to encourage others uh, throughout this series by sharing what, how it's impacting you or what thoughts you have about it uh, or what questions you have about that. And to that end, we are, for the first time in Woodland Hills history, introducing the hashtag. Uh, do we have a, 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 a screen for that? I don't know if they put one up. Uh, the hashtag for this series is, is hashtag uh, uh, you before me. For you who don't know what a hashtag is, uh, hashtag, get with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's so if, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, you can use these, these uh, hashtag statements. And then when you put in that statement, you'll enter into the conversation. Uh, whatever anyone said under that, that hashtag will be there. So you can read what others are saying and you can contribute to it and things like that. I, I, I don't know if I, I was the first, but I hashtagged it this, this week. Say, I'm so stoked about this upcoming uh, uh, sermon. Hashtag you before me. So when you go on there, you'll see my, uh, my, my tweet. Um, and I don't know if I'm the first or not, but join in. In fact, as, as I'm preaching the message, um, if, if something occurs to you, if something I say lands with you, if you want to just, whatever, you can do that in the service. 
So you, you can have your phones out, and you can, you can tweet, and Instagram, and Facebook, and whatever other social media. What? Uh, they're, they're all the things. It doesn't, they don't cross over, though, do they? Hey, Twitter's just Twitter. Okay, so choose your social media and go with it. Um, and so we're okay with that. Uh, if you're going to have your phones out, uh, though, please have the sound turned off. I would very much appreciate that. Appreciate that. And uh, if you have your, uh, your, your phone out and you're looking at it, you better, be, you better be tweeting, all right, or whatever social media. I don't want anyone playing cribbage during my message or Fortnite or Blackjack or whatever. So enough of that. All right. So there you go. I, I, I want to start with this. Um, I mentioned last year in one message, I didn't explain it, but I, that I went on a, a, this uh, trip. It's called the Sankofa Journey. Uh, Dennis Edwards, back in last April, Dennis is the former uh, pastor of the Sanctuary Covenant Church in North Minneapolis, real dear friend of mine. He's now teaching at, at Northern Seminary. And um, uh, he, he called me up and invited me to join him on the Sankofa trip. Sankofa is an African word, and I forget which country it comes from, but it means looking backward, looking into the past uh, in order to move forward. So it's learning from the past. And uh, it consists of this, that you had 15 African-American pastors and 15 other pastors, most of them were white, both male and female. And we together got on a bus and spent four days traveling to see all the major sites that were important to the civil rights movement or that just uh, were noteworthy because of what they say about the history of racism in America. And um, I mean, we went to some incredible places, uh, went to... Uh, eight or nine museums, the best one being the Legacy Museum down in Birmingham, Alabama. If you ever get a chance to check that out, do it. It's incredible. Spend six hours there, easy. Um, we went to the place in Birmingham where they uh, unloaded the slaves after those who survived the journey. They would unload them uh, on this one dock, and then they'd march them up Market Street. It's still called that, or Exchange Street, it's called. And then it, it, in the town square is, is where they would auction them off. And we got to you know, visit all these places and, and just like, enter into that, like you, you, you were there. Uh, we saw the, the first, st the first uh, house in the Underground Railroad uh, coming out of Memphis. And where the, they, they would store the, the, the runaway slaves. And, and we saw the 16th Street um, uh, Church, spent some time there, where in 1963 some racists planted a bomb that ended up killing uh, four kids. Just incredible stuff. Went to the Lorraine Hotel where Martin Luther King was assassinated and the museum that's associated with that. And then while we were on the bus together, we would uh, sometimes watch videos and, or have discussions or have group activities. So he invited me to go on this, this Sankofa trip. And the minute he asked me, I knew I was supposed to go. But I'll be honest with you, I so did not want to go. I did not want to go. I, and I'll tell you why. Though I act like an extrovert, I'm actually a very strong introvert. Actually, my wife, after I'm around people for a while, I have to have my cave time. Uh, and, and so I, I, the idea of being around people, locked on a bus, talking to people from morning to night for four straight days, it's close to my definition of hell. I, it, it, it's like, I feel suffocated just thinking about it. So I, 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 I wasn't excited about that at all. Then on top of that, I uh, have never gotten much out of museums or, or, or sites. Like going places never has done much for me that looking at a photo wouldn't do. Or reading a book on it wouldn't do. Um, and I think it's because I have a real active imagination so that when I have a photo or, or if I'm reading about something, I'm there. I picture myself there in, in very vivid detail. So when I actually go there and experience it, it doesn't add much to what I've already been doing in my head. 
And so it's always kind of, oh, that's nice. I, I could have saved a lot of money looking at a photo. It's, and I'm just kind of like weird like that. So 20 years ago, uh, I and Shelly went with some other folks from Woodland Hills on this nine-day trip to Israel. And it was really interesting. It was really informative. But it just didn't move me the way it moved everybody else. Um, I had this one time, that one lady was having a real spiritual experience at the Sea of Galilee, and she was like crying, and, and, and she was saying, Jesus, Jesus, imagine Jesus standing right here. He might have been standing right in this very spot. And she was really getting blessed by it, and thank God. But I, I've imagined that so much. I've always, when I, when I read the Bible, I'm imagining him on the, on the Sea of Galilee. I, I picture that. So being there and imagining Jesus there didn't do anything I wasn't already doing. In fact, I always imagine Jesus around me. And so whether I'm at the Mall of America or Sea of Galilee doesn't make much difference. You know, it's just, so it's just, I, and I know I'm really weird in that way. So I was missing, I don't know, but um, it just doesn't do much for me. And then on top of that, Dennis had told me that we're going to be doing group activities. Okay, I'm not alone on that one. All the eyes in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. I hate group activities. I, eh, I do them because you're supposed to do them, and I participate and give them my all, but it, they almost always strike me as as kind of corny or, or boring or very, very awkward, and sometimes all three. And so the idea of doing group activities is really, I wanted to run away. So you've got all day long, four days, morning to night, talking to people, going to sites that probably aren't going to do anything more than what you already got looking at photos, and doing group activities. It's like, ugh. But I knew I was supposed to go. And being a righteous man, I said yes. <laughs> to my surprise, uh, I, I, to really my shock, it was a profoundly moving experience. I was, I was, uh, throughout, every day I would find myself getting choked up about stuff, and I didn't know why. I was just so, I was, I felt really raw. Um, I, I, I just couldn't get it. I, I, when I was staying at the Lorraine Hotel where Martin Luther King was shot, and I've, see, I've seen photos of that, so, so many photos of that, and a, a documentaries on that, and read books on that, and I've imagined it so many times. I didn't expect this would be anything. But I'm sitting there looking up at that balcony, and I start to cry. And it's like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> but I'm feeling this, this in a way that I had, hadn't felt before. And even the group activities. Now, some of them were corny. And, yeah, but... but um, like the last night, the last day we were there, this is the quintessential, this is tailor-made to push every bu buzzer in my brain. We had to get in a circle of us 30, put our arms around each other, and then, and so it's already, and then we had to look into each other's eyes. <laughs> and the person on the left was supposed to, it gets worse, speak a word into you, looking into your eyes, a word over you. Ah, so I, I would say, speak to the person to my right looking in his eyes, and the person on my left was speaking to mine. And, and I made me think, this is going to be really, really tough. But it's going around, and, and I'm starting to get choked up about it. When it gets to Dennis, who was my partner, was right to my left, he looks into my eyes, I'm looking in his eyes. Normally I'd be thinking, this is excruciating, but, but he spoke this word, and it, it, it just undid me. So I'm wondering, why was that trip so powerful when every other trip I've taken uh, of that sort has just left me kind of dry. And it wasn't about the new information I got or anything like that. I, I knew a lot of the information before I went down there. It wasn't about information. If I examined it, the main reason I'm convinced is because I was experiencing these sites, going to these locations and having these discussions, 
with African-American brothers and sisters. And with African-American brothers and sisters who were greatly affected by the slavery and uh, Jim Crow and, and the ongoing racism in America. Whereas my life wasn't that affected, not directly. And in some of our discussion groups and group activities, uh, the African-Americans would, the pastors would, would, like in a very raw, honest, and vulnerable way, share what they were processing as they were going to these sites, and sometimes share of their own experience, some of the racism that they've experienced. And, and see, that, 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 that just, every time they did that, it felt like a profound gift. Because it allowed me and my white colleagues to get on the inside of an experience we otherwise wouldn't be on the inside of. I think what happened to me was a little bit like what happened uh, to the scientist played by Bill Bixby in Titanic. Everyone's seen here the Titanic, right? All right. The heart will go on. So you might recall at the end of the movie uh, Titanic, the scientist who's leading the expedition to find the Titanic, he says, after Rose, remember Rose and Jack, and Rose tells the story, which is documented in the, in the movie, it lives me on this love romance that was going on and blah, 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 blah. Um, and then afterwards, Bill Bixby says, I, you know, I've spent all these years searching for the Titanic, but I never let her get on the inside of me. But what had happened was that see, Rose let him on the inside of her story, which opened up him, to, allowed him to open up to let the Titanic become part of his story. It was, it was see, up until that point, the Titanic was just an interesting statistic. But once Rose told her story, it took on flesh and blood. It got on the inside. And he came to see that it, this is about a real tragedy uh, for, for real people. Um, and and he, he, he felt the pain of it in a way that he hadn't felt before. That's sort of what I think happened to me on the Sankofa trip. I, I, there's times where I've been watching videos and I'd be moved and reading a book and be moved and whatever, but never like this. This, this was in a, in a different category. And it's because when the African-American brothers and sisters opened up to me, let me under their skin, see, it opened me up to be in a position to experience more deeply, more profoundly, the horror and the pain of, of these sites and what they stood for and the racism of, of, Americans, of America's history. And so I'm encountering stuff I already knew, but I'm now encountering it not just from my unaffected white perspective. I'm encountering it, to some degree at least, sharing the experience of African-American brothers and sisters, which completely brings a different dimension to this. And it, 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 it profoundly affected me. I felt it more powerfully and more tragically, more realistically than I've ever experienced it before. We don't usually talk about hospitality this way, but see, what those African-American brothers and sisters were doing was they were, they were extending kingdom hospitality to me and to my white colleagues. Um, they, were, they were inviting us into the home of their experience. And they were welcoming us. And they were offering themselves up to us as a gift. And that enhances my life by opening me up to experience a, in a new, a new dimension of the stuff I've always known, but now it's got, well, it's got a, a broadened perspective on it, which allows me to experience it more deeply. This is the essence of all kingdom hospitality. It is making space in your life 
to love and welcome the stranger or the other, the, the person you don't know. I mean, the person is very different than you. It's letting them in on the inside, um, in, inside your life, inside your, your community, inside your experience. It's letting them get under your skin and then being invited to get under their skin. Now, that's not, that's not how we usually think about hospitality. I know. When you usually say hospitality, you think Martha Stewart, right? And so hospitality, we usually think of it as an event. Um, and it's not an event where you let people in on the rawness of your life, like what was going on in the Sankofa journey. It's usually an event where you're performing and hiding maybe aspects of your life. So you have a you know, dinner party and you're going to invite people over and, and so you, the house is cleaner than it ever is and, and the food is better than it usually is and you have the best silverware out there and you throw a nice dinner party and typically it's with people who look like you and talk like you and sound like you and smell like you and eat like you and prefer what you prefer and don't prefer what you don't prefer and, and, and it's, that's why they're comfortable. Um, and dinner parties are fine. With family and friends, I'm not going to knock that. That's, that's okay to have. But as we're going to see throughout this series, kingdom hospitality, it may include events. <clears throat> may include events. But it's not defined by events. Kingdom hospitality is it's a, a state of mind and a condition of the heart. You don't turn on and turn off. It's a, it's a posture you assume, an open posture you assume towards others that requires a certain kind of character, cultivating a certain kind of character. Uh, kingdom hospitality. It's about cultivating the kind of mind and heart that is open to those outside of your circle of friends and family, the stranger, the different person, and being open to letting them come in and to uh, speak into your life, to share your life with them. You may recall last, last year, last fall, I, I did a two-part series on hospitality. And this is partly the result of that, because that little short series kind of rocked my world. Before preparing for that series, I, I had no idea how, how central hospitality was, both to, in terms of God's priorities and in terms of the kingdom. Um, and, and, and so as I was preparing for that, ser- that series, I came to see that kingdom hospitality is at the foundation, the very foundation of what it means to be the people of God. And the more clearly I saw how important this is, the more clearly I saw how absent it is in the contemporary Western church. I mean, truth be told, I think that we, including myself in this, are far more self-enclosed and far more, uh, you know, blocking out the other than we realize. It's, 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 part, of our, it's part of our Western mindset. So when something is a top priority for God, but a low priority or, or maybe not even a priority at all for us, when that's the case, we've got a crisis. If, you, if, if your heart is to be living in God's way, then when God has a top priority and we find that we, for honest with ourselves, have that as a very low priority, we've got a crisis. The gulf between those two things is a crisis and rectifying it is a matter of urgency. So I'd like you to mentally tag this sermon series as urgent, all right? It's like if you get an email that says urgent on it, well, that's the one that has your priority. That's the one, okay, we've got to pay attention to that one. Uh, this series is urgent because, as a matter of fact, we'll see that this is God's, one of his top priorities, and yet it's very absent in the, in, in the church today. What makes it even more urgent right now is that we're living at a time where 
Americans in particular, but Western people in general, are feeling more and more isolated. There's been all sorts of studies showing this. Loneliness, the sense of loneliness is just going up and up and up. That's weird because we got all these, all the social media and Facebook and we're supposed to be able to better connect, but people are getting lonelier and lonelier. There's a lot of reasons for it. Um, I mean, one is American culture is just inherently individualistic. And it inclines us, unless we're pushing back on it, it inclines us to live pretty much like we're on a, a fortified island. We've got our walls up, and we, this is me and mine, and we don't want to be inconvenienced by, by, by others. And then we live in like closed communities where we've got our, our group of friends, and it's closed off, and we're content living in that bubble. Our, the individualism intends us in that direction. And then with consumerism, people are so busy chasing after stuff and paying the bills and taking their kids to every possible opportunity that they don't, they don't have any time for anyone outside of their closed community. And then with the technology, uh, people are just turning into their own virtual reality and putting on their own headsets and doing their own individual things. And, 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 and so they don't have the interest or the time or the inclination to try to be connecting with real people in the real world, especially ones that they, they, don't, uh, partic- that they don't know. And then what makes it even more urgent is that we are living at a juncture of history when the whole globe is, we're seeing xenophobia skyrocket everywhere. It's um, the fear of the other, that's xenophobia. Fear of the stranger, fear of those who don't look like you or talk like you or, or whatever. So nations now more and more are closing their borders to these desperate people who are fleeing Syria and Lebanon and Yemen and other places, just desperate civil war, terrible conditions doing desperate things, often dying in the process to try to get someplace where they can have some safety. And no one's letting them in. Right now, I, and I didn't know, I, I would have guessed this to be 10 times lower than this, but I read it this week. There are now over 70 million displaced people on this planet who don't have a country. Uh, the majority of them are living in refugee camps, which is terrible. It, it, it's terrible. It's not a way for human beings to live. But they're trapped there in the no man's land of these refugee conditions because no one wants to take them in. It's like every country now is, is, is going in the direction of being a closed community, a gated community. We don't want anyone. And then with that comes this depiction, this caricature, this stereotype of the other, those who don't look like you, those don't, don't share your culture, don't, don't dress like you. Well, th- those are the folks to be afraid of because those are the folks, they're murderers and they're rapists and, 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 and they're thieves and they're, they're, they're terrorists and they're here to steal your job at the very least. Even though none of that's based in any kind of fact, but, but that, that's the stereotype. So everyone's like, we have this fear of the other. And it's, 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 it's rampant. Now here's the thing, I... I like that, that fear of the other and that lack of compassion breaks my heart. I mean, if, if you get on the inside of just, uh, one or two stories of, of families in these situations, it will make you, it'll make you cry. But my heart breaks for that, but I will admit to you, I'm not smart enough to solve that world problem. I, I, yeah, I suppose in a fallen world, every country does need borders, I guess, and, and, and I don't, I, I don't, I'm not smart enough to come up with the right formula as to what, how tight or how loose those borders should be. So I'll leave that for the smarter people to figure out. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist, have an IQ of 150, to know that xenophobia has got absolutely no place for king, in, in the heart of kingdom people. Amen. None whatsoever. In fact, we're called to cultivate a mind and a heart that is absolutely antithetical, the opposite of xenophobia. So here, xenophobia... 
It comes from xenos, which means other, came from the other, and, and phobos, which means fear. Fear of the other, xenophobia. We are called to practice hospitality, which is philoxenia. Love, philo, philo uh, of the other, xenos. We're called to love them, uh, to affirm them, embrace them, welcome them in. And that's the opposite of, of fearing them. So, for example, it says this in, in Hebrews 13. Um, Hebrews 13, board says... Hebrews 13, you keep, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Okay, so you've got your community. That's wonderful. And he's t- talking, as the whole New Testament does, to house churches. So these are intimate communities. So keep loving brothers and sisters. But do not forget to show hospitality, philozenia, to strangers. Have space for outsiders, for the other, for the different folks. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. He's referring to several episodes in the Old Testament where folks entertain uh, strangers and they turn out to be angels. But this, this, is, this, this is our call. In fact, you find throughout the Bible, and we'll touch on some of this in the series, there's hundreds and hundreds of passages that instruct God's people to care for the outsider, the alien, the foreigner, the person in need, and so on and so on, over and over and over again. You, you, you get the impression this is one of God's top priorities. So whatever that means, it means that whatever countries do, whatever they don't do, we are called to love and to welcome and to care for the stranger. Countries can act like closed communities, but the kingdom of God can never be a closed community. In fact, we're not just merely an open community. If, if we're a kingdom community, we're not just like open, like if they happen to come in, fine. No, we're, we're to be eagerly desiring to welcome in the stranger. Uh, to, to make them feel at home, to treat them as equal, to treat them as one of us. That is, is our, our kingdom calling. So it doesn't matter whether the stranger's from Haiti or Norway or Timbuktu or Africa, China, you name it. It doesn't matter. We're called to love and embrace them and welcome them in. It doesn't matter whether they've got uh, you know clean record or whether they got some crimes in their past. Our job is to welcome them in, treat them as one of us, make them feel at home. Uh, this is their community. Whether they have got legal documents or not, doesn't matter at all. No, they, they, it's never conditioned in the Bible. If they're a stranger, if they're an outsider, uh, our call is to, wel- to welcome them, to love them, to, to serve them, to make them feel at home. Doesn't matter if they're black, white, brown, or anything in between. Our call is to love them and to uh, welcome them in and to care for them. Doesn't matter if they speak our language or not. Doesn't matter if they dress like us or not. Doesn't matter if they dance like us or not. None of that is of any consideration. The world may worry about that stuff, but not us, because we're called to be just this all-inclusive, you are welcome here, we love that you're here, you're part of us here, and we embrace them on that. That's the call, folks. Hospitality. Now, why is this so important to God? The answer is because this is what God is like. This is what God is like, and, and it's the only kind of love that is compatible with God. Um, and our, our main job, as I say, I say all the time here, our, our, number, our, our most foundational calling is to manifest the character of Abba Father to all people at all times. God, we're called to exercise radical hospitality towards others because our God is radically hospitable. So I, I want us to really see this here tonight, all right? Now, th- th- this point is, is a little bit theologically dense, so follow me on this. Uh, God has got... In a sense, hospitality wired into his very essence. God, his essence is, he's got an other-oriented love is, 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 is his essence. According to the Orthodox Christian teaching, God is three persons in a community, the, the, the Trinity, we call it. And, and in this, this Trinity is characterized by perfect love. 
And so as the, the, the church has taught throughout its history, each of the three divine persons, without losing their distinctness, they wholly pour themselves out for one another and are wholly open to one another. That's what love is. Their very being is other-oriented towards others. So other-orientedness is built into God's very, I shouldn't say built into, it's eternal, but, but that's God's very essence. God's very essence is, you might say God's very essence is you before me. That's the triune community. God's very essence is this pouring out and, and being unconditionally open to the other. And in uh, the early church, they coined a word that's been used throughout the church history, and the word is perichoresis. Everyone say perichoresis. That's a very important word, perichoresis. You want know, to lock that in. It means mutually indwelling. The, 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 the teaching is that the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the love is so perfect that while they don't lose their distinctness, they, are, they, they, they dwell within one another, wholly and fully. That's why you can't say three parts of the Trinity. No, the, it's all one. God is one. And, and the oneness is this perfect perichoresis, this perfect love, this per- perfect pouring out towards the other. So given that God's very essence is this triune love, this other-oriented love, this perichoretic love, uh, given that, it's not surprising that the whole Bible, the whole biblical narrative, could be described as, as a narrative of God's hospitality. It's God displaying hospitality. And that's who God is. So it starts at creation. You know, God could have considered his own triune community to be a closed community. He could have just gone on continuing in the bliss and the love and the joy of, of this triune dance. And that's the way it's been described sometimes in the church tradition. This perichoresis is a dance, uh, uh, this loving dance of pouring out fully into, into one another. Why, why, why disrupt that? God, God's got a good thing going here, right? He's enjoying the bliss of being God. And see, if, if you create others, they're not going to be God, so they're not going to be perfect like you. <laughs> so you have only to lose in this. It's like they're not going to enhance your dance. They may disrupt it. So it makes sense if God just kept on being God, but instead, God decides to create a world. He's an other-oriented God. And he wants to extend the hospitality of his own being to to others and invite others in on this. So God makes space for the other. He makes space for the other in order to share himself with the other and invite others in on this dance. So God creates this world and, and populates it with free agents that are capable of love. And he's doing that because God wants to show hospitality. Uh, to, to, to these others, wants to share his own bliss, the joy of this perichoretic dance with others. He wants to let others get under his skin and him to get under their skin. He wants to share that. So that the hospitable God creates the world in order to extend his hospitality. So he creates Adam and Eve and he shows his hospitality by, by preparing a home for them, the Garden of Eden. And, and it's clear, if you understand that Genesis 2 narrative in its original ancient Near Eastern context, the Garden of Eden is described as something like a temple, a dwelling place. And, and it's a dwelling place where God is going to abide there. That's why it's a temple, because everyone thought God lives in temples. But it's also where the human beings are invited. So home for us, the home that God intended for us, is a place where, we are gonna, where God and humans dwell together. And in fact, it's a place where we will dwell together and, and we will be loving the way God loves. Uh, he, he, he will be pouring himself into us the way he pours himself into his own triune community. And we reciprocate by pouring ourselves into him, which presupposes that we're completely open. So the, the paracritic dance gets expanded and now includes humanity. That's how it was supposed to be in the garden. But of course, as you know, Adam and Eve are deceived and they reject God's hospitality. But that didn't stop God from being hospitable. 
God instead embarks on this long and arduous journey to extend his hospitality to human beings in a different way. So he raises up Israel, God's chosen people. And uh, uh, he shows his hospitality to them by providing a space for them, uh, a home for them in the promised land. And God's goal there ultimately was to use the, his chosen people to be the means by which he extends invitation, the hospitality invitation to the rest of the nations. So you have all these passages about go and invite them in. People come from the east and the west and come to the banquet table of the Lord and things like that. There was supposed to be a nation of priests who won other nations to allegiance to the one true God. Now unfortunately, as happened so often with the church, uh, Israel fell victim to this fallen inclination of ours to live in a closed community. And so Israel becomes a closed community. Uh, they begin to see their, 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 their chosenness as simply their special blessedness. And they forget, what, why you got, God, they forget that God blessed them to be a blessing to others. Whenever God blesses you, it's to be a blessing to others. Because uh, he's an other-oriented God. He's never just, you know, it's always about others. And so Israel forgot that. So they begin to look down on and get self-righteous and disdain the very nations that they were supposed to be serving. But they, that, even that didn't stop God from being hospitable. To the contrary, he begins to put his full perichoresis dance, his full hospitable nature on display when he pours himself out to humanity by becoming one of us. God who sets aside all of his privileges to pour himself out and become one of us. He wasn't just pretending to be one of us, he became one of us. Okay, so this is a, 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 the perichoresis, mutual indwelling. He's now dwelling as one of us. And it, that expresses something of the perichoretic dance within God himself. And um, so it says this in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and this is your lecture divina verse uh, for this week. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then the word became flesh and lived among us as we have seen, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Uh, he, he came and lived here. Now, the word that, that says, says live is, is skenao, and it, it means, literally means to tabernacle or to take up residence. So I, I like the, the message translation of, of verse 14. is I think, wonderful. Uh, he, he says that the word became flesh and blood, blood and moved into the neighborhood. He moved into our neighborhood. He took up residency here. I, I think that, that, that captures it. So God pours himself out fully into humanity by becoming one of us. It reflects his perichoresis nature. And he did that in the hopes that people would respond by opening themselves up to him and pouring themselves out towards him. So he becomes a human being, moves into our neighborhood. But the trouble is that this neighborhood of ours, under the oppression of the powers and under, because of our fallen nature, our neighborhood isn't particularly safe. Uh, it's not particularly welcoming to strangers. And so when a stranger shows up and doesn't conform to our ways of thinking and doesn't do things our way, they might just get crucified. And see, Jesus knows that. He knows that he, he, coming to our neighborhood, he's going to get killed. But he does it anyways. And the reason, the only reason you can point is that manifesting God's hospitality, extending God's hospitality, he, can, he must have he considered that worth it. And so he did. And when Jesus dies on the cross, well, that, that pretty much changes everything. Out of love, he lets himself get crucified. And on the cross, now we, here we get, 
the absolute pinnacle, the apex, the zenith of, of God's, the revelation of God's pouring out nature. Because on the cross, Jesus didn't take on our humanity, though that was already incredible. But he takes on our sin and takes on the estrangement that is the result of that sin. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He enters in the depth of our hell. And see, he couldn't have gone any further than he went out of love for us. So the cross becomes the perfect revelation of the kind of perichoresis that God is. God is this kind of love, this mutually, indwell, this, this mutually indwelling love, this pouring out love. Uh, and now that, that love gets displayed outward towards us, and it looks like the cross. And all of it is God inviting us to participate in the bliss of his being, to be saved, as we, we sometimes say it. He, he, God, it's, God is, is, is doing all this to get us under his skin, so we will let him under our skin. And he dies for us because that, only that perfect expression of, of self-sacrificial, other-oriented love, only that could break the bondage, the power that, that, that the enemy had on us and free us from the sin, free us from all the things that separated us from God and kept us from receiving that hospitality. It's the only way that we can be reconciled back to God and then start to be reconciled to one another. So Paul says this, uh, Ephesians 2. In, in Christ Jesus, in this passage, you guys, it's, this passage rocks. In Christ Jesus, you who, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, and in his flesh he has made both groups. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles here. But that's sort of, sort of paradigmatic for all the divisions that, that, that humanity has. Uh, he's made out of the two, uh, uh, both groups into one, and has broken down the dividing wall, praise God. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself, in Jesus, one new humanity in place of two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body, in Jesus Christ, through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it, praise God. So in Christ, God's creating this one new humanity, and in this one humanity, he's torn down all the walls that could separate us from God and separate us from one another. He's made peace in himself. He is our peace. He's made peace between us and God and, and, and peace with one another. And he put to death all hostility. So that in this one new humanity, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you're part of this one new humanity. And, and that means you're part of a humanity in which hostility has been put to death. Uh, you're part of a one new humanity for whom xenophobia has been put to death. And racism has been put to death. And hatred has been put to death. And fear has been put to death. And every possible thing that could divide us. Prejudice has been put to death. Uh, Self-righteousness has been put to death. Everything that could divide human beings. Class categories has been put to death. All hostility has been put to death. And our job, kingdom people, our job is to manifest that. Which is to say to put on display God's outrageous, scandalous hospitality. It's already true, but our job is to manifest it in a world that does not yet acknowledge that. That's what makes this so important. And Paul, he doesn't stop here. He goes on. Listen to this. He says, a few verses later, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In the temples where God dwells, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Oh, man. See, because of God's outrageous hospitality, 
shown to us on Calvary. We, we are no longer strangers. We, he calls us friends. We're no longer outsiders. He's made us insiders. We're no longer sinners. We're made into saints. We're, we're, we're no longer aliens. Uh, he's made us part of his own household. In fact, he, he not only lets us get under his skin, he's, made, he's adopted us into his family. He says, we are God's family. And if we're God's family, that means then that we're home. See, Jesus Christ is the home in which, the temple in which God and human beings are, are going to be dwelling in this, in this mutually interpenetrating way, in a way that, that, that reflects the, the perichoresis of, of, of God himself. Jesus is fully God and fully human because in his own being, he reconciles God and human beings and therefore human beings with other human beings. Praise God. That's all found in, so Jesus Christ is our home. We won't see this fully manifested, of course, until the end of the age. But it's already true that we are dwelling with God in the person of Jesus Christ. We're placed in him. And so we are joining it with God in his other-oriented love. We're joining with the, we are already participating in this, this, this hospitality dance that is God's own being. We're participating in the outpouring and the flowing in and the opening up that characterizes God himself. It's already true, but our most foundational call is to manifest that. We're to be doing to all others what God has done for us. And we find this throughout the Bible. Uh, Paul says, for example, in Romans 15, that we should welcome one another as Christ Jesus welcomes us. And, 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 and now, when you hear that, don't think a welcoming handshake. What did Jesus do to welcome us? I just reviewed it. He did everything. We are to be welcoming others the way Jesus welcomes us. And, and, and when we do that, when we, are, when we show love to the stranger, the outsider, when we make space in our life to not just be consumed with ourselves and our loved ones, but we have a space for the other, when we do that, we're not just imitating God. We are participating in God's hospitality. Like Israel, the church is the means by which God wants to extend hospitality to the world. That's why we're called the body of Christ. Uh, you know, when Jesus was here on earth and wanted to show hospitality to people and welcome people and love people, he had to do it through his body. There's no other way to do it. He needed his body to do that. Well, now we are the corporate body of Christ. We're the corporate body of Christ. And God still wants to be lavishing hospitality on people, but he's bound to a body, which means that God needs us. God needs you to, to, to if God's going to show his hospitality to people, God needs you to step up to do it. God needs us. We're the hands and feet and mouth and eyes and everything else of, of, of the body of Christ. Which means, folks, that there are scores and scores and scores, untold numbers of people that God wants to welcome and make feel at home and, and care for their needs and all of that. He, scores of people and, and scores of people who are longing to belong, who want a place to, to call home, a, a people to, to, to belong to, but they won't experience any of that unless we stand up and say, God, use me. Unless we ourselves are willing to cultivate the kind of heart and the kind of mind uh, that makes space for, us, for, for others. Uh, it, it, things really hang up on this. And this is, this is the call of God on our life. This is why this is all important, folks. So God's asking us, would you be hospitable? Would you reflect my character to others? Can I use you to bless other people? And in light of everything God has done for us, and showing hospitality to us and welcoming us when we didn't deserve it at all, how can we possibly say no to that? Amen? Amen. Reflect the hospitality you've received. Okay, so I'm going to end with giving you three assignments. 
Three. Write them down, all right? Uh, Number one, let's start here with this series tonight. Let's start here. And and, um, see, it's it's like this. When we come together at at a weekend gathering, but this applies to every gathering of Woodland Hills people, whether it's Echo or Refuge or the Wednesday anything, whatever. When we come together, it's normal to meet your family and friends and and spend some time with them. That's fine. That's, That's needed. But can we reserve this much space. Every time we come together, a little bit of space for the other, the person you don't know, the stranger. Now, maybe they've been coming here for 20 years or, or, or maybe it's their first time, but they're a stranger to you. Could we make a commitment to every time we come to at least meeting one other person, welcoming them, making them feel welcome? In fact, could we have this as a goal, right? If, if, if we're to be the people of God who really do manifest the hospitality of God to all people at all times, this ought to be the most outrageous, scandalous, loving place on the planet. So could we make this goal, this our goal? And we'll never achieve it. But, but you have to have a goal to know how far you can get. And the goal would be this. To each of us take responsibility, if this is your, your, your spiritual home, to try to make it so that everybody who comes to a gathering here leaves feeling welcomed. Like, this is a place that they belong. This, this is a place where I'm wanted. This is a place where I'd be appreciated. It only happen if we each take responsibility to have a little bit of space outside of our own closed community so that we're not a closed community, but we have a little space to reach out to others. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? All right. All right. Just one person. Just say, hey, how are you doing? I'm really glad you're here. And welcome them. And maybe go from someplace from there. I don't know, but it starts there. Number two, I want to encourage you to start to cultivate, it doesn't happen overnight, but the, uh, the mind, the kind of condition of the heart and state of the mind that makes space for others. Um, you know, ask God to help you. Like, see, what does it look like for you to have space in your life, emotional space and time space for the other? Uh, ask him to help you be remembering this, to have the other on your radar screen. And ask him, what does that look like in my neighborhood, at the workplace, at church? Uh, let him guide you. And you start with taking baby steps, just introducing yourself to a new person every once in a while. But see where it goes from there. That's practicing the hospitality of God, having space for people outside your circle. And third, the Electio Divina. Um, it's on the back of your bulletin. I really encourage you, this is a practice that's been around for 1,500 years, and, and it wouldn't have been around that long if it didn't work. People find this to be very life-giving. It's profoundly simple. But just read those passages asking those questions and spend time with it. Because what you're doing, see, is you're giving God a chance to speak through his word to begin to change your mind and change your heart and form your character. And so spend time with that. We want to be people of the word. And the Lectio Divina is a good way to do it. And as I said before, if you want to find out more about that, we've got some handouts back there that will explain it in a little more detail. All right, would you stand? On behalf of the hospitable God, I would like to say that he is very happy that you are here. He's delighted that you are here. And he's really hoping his people uh, reflect that by the way that they greet you. And because the truth is that no ifs, ands, buts, maybes, exceptions. If you're breathing, you're welcome here, and we love you, and we, we, want to, we consider you one of, one of us. There's no hierarchy here. We're all just sinners who found a Savior, right? Amen. We've been invited to this. We've gotten this incredible invitation to participate in the dance of God throughout eternity. And our greatest joy is just seeing other people come into this. Just like God wants to see us come into it, 
that heart is reflective when we want others to come into this. Fathers, we leave here, I pray we do it, remembering, remembering, Lord, that we're, we're not our own, we belong to you. Remembering our call to extend hospitality to others as you've extended to us. I pray, Lord, that you'd, you'd just tear down every, every uh, remnant of the old self that's not part of the one humanity. Just rid us of xenophobia. Rid us of, of any sort of self-righteousness. Rid of, of, of anything that could possibly inhibit the flow of your hospitality into us and through us towards others. As we leave here, your body committed to doing what you have empowered us to do. And if you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love one another. God bless you guys.